0: I I think in, in my ideal world land use planning itself would be a little bit more proactive with being resilient and really you know not just saying we have sustainable planning measures in place but really living out what true sustainability and resiliency means so to me it's it sort of transcends a fire topic as opposed to let's really Let's really boost the opportunity of what land use planning can achieve and fire or any other type of hazard would be a natural outcome of our communities being more resilient and more sustainable.
1: Hi there and welcome to episode 15 of Life with Fire podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Montai, and today we are starting a series on land use planning, um, specifically land use planning for fire resilience. Today we're going to hear from Molly Maori, who leads the Community Planning Assistance for Wildfire Program. But also has a resume that's like eight miles long. And I'll let her kind of explain her background and the uh, programs that she's involved in. But uh, suffice it to say that she is an expert in planning uh, sustainable and fire resilient developments. Uh, she has a pretty robust background in land use planning and generally um, just helps communities across the US and Canada to better exist in the sort of wildland urban interface. When I was first researching who to talk to about land use planning for fire resilience, Molly's name came up repeatedly, and it's pretty clear that she's the sort of foremost expert on this topic. So I was really excited to get her on the phone and for her to be our first guest in this sort of mini-series about land use planning. As always, I appreciate you guys listening, sharing, subscribing. And also supporting our Patreon. We've had a few new Patreon members the last couple of days. And I just want to say that I appreciate you guys coming in and um, helping support the podcast. So without further ado, we'll get to Molly. And thanks again for listening.
0: I don't think wildfire crossed my radar until... Honestly, until I wasn't grad school. So I I was a planner before I was anything to do with wildfire. And then when I went back to grad school, I just started becoming really interested in wildfire because I was taking a, I think it was called a city design and nature course. And we had to pick a project about how some kind of natural element uh, influenced the built environment. And I don't honestly even remember why I started getting interested. And in, I think it was kind of close to the time where San Diego had experienced a lot of fires. So there was just a little bit more about um, about that. And I started becoming intrigued by it. And, and then I also started realizing that there really wasn't a lot of connection between land use planning and wildfire. And so it seemed like a natural... Um, at least it seemed like a natural journey for an interest. It didn't really seem like a natural career path
1: until opportunities started opening up. So, yeah, I'm actually curious, like when you got into this, was, was there anybody else really like doing this and doing a lot of research in this realm at this point?
0: You know it's funny because it didn't seem like at the time, but when I look back on some historical papers, they may have not been written by land use planners, but there were certainly some really uh, well versed and you know experienced forestry professionals who who did address you know the they were land use implications and and I think that you know I also remember when I started working at the National Fire Protection Association, which was like my first fire related job after grad school. Uh, someone came into my office one day and they were like, Molly, I think this would be really interesting. And it was from one of their technical committee, uh, like a historical technical committee paper from, I want to say it was the 1920s or maybe it was the 1930s on summer homes and cabins in the forested areas and the steps you should take to avoid having them get burned down. And this was at a time when you know, there's like, like a lot of cabin development, let's say, in Minnesota or places like we were just talking about in the Midwest. Um, and I think in more of the areas of the Midwest that were at the time more of a, a fire concern. And so anyway, the whole point is I started to appreciate that there was this interesting history that unfortunately has been ignored in terms of the advice that we could have been taking for decades or hundreds of years, maybe not hundreds, but at least, you know, decades.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And before we get too far, can you uh, explain your position a little bit and kind of what you're, maybe a little bit about what you're currently working on?
0: Yeah, definitely. So I actually wear two hats and so I'll I'll share both of them because some people might know me in different ways. One is that I had been a planning consultant for a number of years. In 2013, I opened up my own practice called Wildfire Planning International. And since that time, through my work, I've been helping communities around the US and Canada, uh, working on tough development type questions and what their codes and plans should or could say and assisting communities with navigating the process of how to integrate fire into their planning world. Uh, wildfire, that is, <laughs> and more recently, a couple years ago, I started, I co-founded a nonprofit called the Community Wildfire Planning Center, and so more of my time, I've been directing to nurture our nonprofit and really uh, position it as a resource to help more communities, you know, prepare for, or adapt to, or recover from wildfires. So that's been really exciting for me to be spending time. I serve as the executive director uh, for our nonprofit. And we just finished a report, uh, which I can't wait to talk to you about. It's called Land Use Planning Approaches in the Wildland Urban Interface. So I'll I'll pause there, but um, I definitely can speak to our recent research that we finished just this week from the Community Wildfire Planning
1: Center. I actually would like to hear about that. If I don't talk about it now, I'm totally going to like, I'm going to lapse on it later because I have a couple other things I wanted to talk about. But yeah, if you wanted to talk about it now, that'd be great. Sure. So we just
0: completed this research. It was myself and uh, my co-author was Darren Punchard, who's a fellow land use hazard mitigation planner. And we worked, we we focused on four different states, California, Montana, Washington and Colorado. And what we did was we really looked at what kind of legislative or non-regulatory requirements, or I shouldn't say requirements, but non-regulatory guidance was in place to help local governments navigate through the wildland urban interface. So in other words, um, you know, what does a state say a local government has to do or should do or could do when it comes to considering the WUI uh, during the planning process? And there's quite a spectrum, as you might (laughs) maybe anticipate. I would say California was definitely on The end of the spectrum that was very much had a a very strong state framework in place that shares, you know, and gives requirements to communities. You know, for example, you have to have, you have to consider wildfire when you go through the general plan and the process of updating your general plan. And then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, there are a lot of communities or states, I should say, that may not even require. the equivalent of a comprehensive plan. So like in Montana, they call it a growth policy, but it's not actually required for jurisdictions. If a jurisdiction does adopt a growth policy, they don't have to have it also cover their entire jurisdictional area. However, if they do adopt a growth policy, um, then they do have to look at wildfire. So we tried to really tease out all of these different states, what they mean, you know, what do you have to do what do you aren't doing, and then really where you could go from here. You know, what what does that mean for all of this in terms of each individual state and as a whole, you know, what are some of the broader opportunities for planners?
1: That's pretty cool because it kind of plays into one of the questions that I had, which was, you know, these sort of widespread initiatives that would... It seems like they're most effective on the state level, but I'm wondering if you think they're more these these initiatives if they're if they're more effectively implemented at a at a local level, at a state level, or at a federal level. Like, what have you found to be the most effective way to actually implement some of these things?
0: I think it's really a combination of both state and local. In my ideal world, which I'm sure there would be you know a lot of uh, a lot of counterpoints to this, but In an ideal world, I think having that state structure that really does give some, at least like a foundation or a baseline on what communities have to do. And it could be a low amount. I'm not talking like lots of different things, but maybe it's a minimum of you have to have a comprehensive plan that does address wildfire. Um, I consider that a fairly low bar, but that doesn't mean all communities have that. And I understand it takes resources but from there, then I think it's always important to give local governments the ability to have some or maintain some flexibility too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, to me, it's really a combination. And we see that working in some places. Um, but then again, it, you know I, I, I think Washington might be a good example where they just recently passed some legislation where they will be, um, or they did complete a wooey you know, a statewide assessment of the WUI, and they also built in a requirement in their state building code that addresses the WUI. But the support tools that they're creating with their WUI assessment are really intended to guide and support the implementation of the um, WUI code, if that makes sense.
1: Like what would those support tools be?
0: So their legislation also passed for the Department of Natural Resources. They they legislated that the department has to offer a technical assistance program, and that hasn't. I guess the the caveat is hasn't been funded yet because it's still under review for their the legislature's uh, budget. But you know, to have that kind of direction to say you shall do this means that it unless some something. You know, unless it doesn't get funded, it will happen, though, is the point. And um, having dedicating those kind of resources, I think, goes a long way towards helping communities, you know, increase their ability to manage or to think about the WUI when they're doing their planning process.
1: Totally. And since you mentioned an ideal world, I'm kind of wondering what you would consider, you um, to be the sort of pinnacle of community resilience in terms of wildfire? Like what would a perfectly resilient community look like in your in your perspective, from a land use perspective?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, they look different in my mind depending on the community. Totally. <laughs> so
1: um,
0: <laughs> I, I think in, in my ideal world, land use planning itself would be a little bit more proactive with being resilient and really, you know, not just saying we have sustainable planning measures in place, but really living out what true sustainability and resiliency means. So to me, it's, it sort of transcends a fire topic as opposed to let's really, let's really boost the opportunity of what land use planning can achieve and fire or any other type of hazard would be a natural outcome of our communities being more resilient and more sustainable over time. Does that make sense?
1: Total sense. Yeah, that's great. That was that was a good answer. Mm-hmm. Um kind of switching switching bases a little bit here, but I am, I'm curious how you end up deciding what communities you're working with. Like, I'm sure that it's based on funding. Um, but I wasn't sure like how that selection process works, you know, cause I've seen a lot of information from Chelan, for example, in Washington. Um, I've seen a lot of, of land use for wildfire resiliency, like papers and things like that about Chelan specifically. And I'm just wondering like how those, how those decisions are made. Sure.
0: So that our work with Chelan was through a particular program that I uh, co-founded with Headwaters Economics back in 2015. Uh, that was through my company, Wildfire Planning International. So we started this program called the Community Planning Assistance for Wildfire, CPAW, and we through that program is how we worked with a number of communities over a several year span to, you know, communities would apply for technical assistance and then they get the opportunity to work with, um, myself and a few other experts who were, you know, had backgrounds in fire behavior or forestry or also other planners. So that was a very hands-on approach. And, um, and I think that you know was a really neat opportunity for communities. The program, I'm no longer affiliated with the program, but it still does exist. Mm-hmm. So more of my work now through our nonprofit work um, or through other work is simply when communities you know have the opportunity, they have the funds or with our work on through the community Wildfire Planning Center, you know we also look at where communities um, like how we I guess how we could have a broader impact than. Know just maybe one community. So with this report, for example, we um, you know tried to aim at, at states where maybe a lot more understanding could be born out of the out of reading the report.
1: Mm-hmm. Totally. And I'm wondering. Um, I know you've. I, I think I've read something about about you guys working in more vulnerable communities, like especially. Um, I think especially this last fire season, it was made pretty clear that there's like a bit of a dis well every fire season really, but there's a bit of a discrepancy between the um uh, mitigation efforts and prevention efforts in like sort of vulnerable communities or like particular like really rural communities or migrant communities. And I'm wondering like how you guys find ways to um to sort of like make sure that they're in the loop. Um, or rather like maybe maybe finding ways uh To get projects funded in those communities? Like, do you seek out communities like that where funding would be really needed? Or how does that work? Yeah, that's a
0: good question. I'm trying to think of a good example on our end, but really what comes to mind is the work that a group like Fire Adapted Washington has been doing. And I'm not intimately familiar with the details, but I do know when I talked to, uh, their director last summer. I thought they were doing really interesting research and outreach on transient populations, and you know that often does come up in our work as well as how to manage areas that you know may be more prone to human ignitions through transient populations. Or, um, you know, there's that perception that that occurs, but sometimes it's truly just a situation of these are vulnerable populations and, you know, how do you outreach and communicate with them? So, you know, if at some point you get the to- the chance to talk to the Washington group, since I know you're based there, mm-hmm. I think they'd have some really neat insights on at least that
1: population. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. And is that something that you guys have any... Um, I don't know, is that something that you're working towards or anything that you've done in the past? Well, I think equity is always a consideration
0: in our work, but Mm -hmm. to speak to a specific project where that was the primary focus, I I don't think I have a good example. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some of our work, though, I'm really intrigued with, uh, like we do a property assessment program here in Colorado we work with Eagle County and the Vale Border Realtors to implement a <clears throat> home hardening program, um, and you know I think we're always intrigued with how to make sure that everyone can, you know, can as an individual property owner can become more resilient. So you know what does that take? Um, Eagle County has been really great about finding grants. And I can't speak to whether how they prioritize those grants, but I Mm -hmm. think, you know, it's always on our minds with how to be as inclusive as possible, because we know that, you know, it's really, it's a huge burden for homeowners when they're getting their insurance raised. And so we're trying to find solutions to help people at, at a, you know, macro scale of how to, how do you make the market work? So people aren't, you know, suffering the consequences of something that they don't
1: always have full control over. Totally. And I'm glad you brought that up. And I don't know how to ask this question exactly, but it was something that I wanted to touch on. I'm just curious how your work intersects with uh, with insurance companies and insurance policies. Like how does, do you work in that realm at all? Or do you end up like helping with policy in that realm? Like how does mm-hmm. that kind of work out? Yeah,
0: <clears throat> we work indirectly, I would say. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned, the real fire program, and this is similar to the wildfire partners program in Boulder County and some other programs around the state. So what we were finding years ago is that, you know, insurance companies might start just cutting people's insurance altogether and saying, we we aren't going to cover you anymore, or we're going to raise your premium so much that it was very cost prohibitive for homeowners to, You know to to deal with that and the main driver was that there was a concern about their property being at risk to wildfire and so the solution and again this isn't only our solution it's, it's really a shared solution in communities across the state is well how can we give how can we give property owners an opportunity to really um you know take control of the situation and manage their structure in a way or you know, make repairs or changes to their structure in a way or their landscaping so that they could still be insured. And um, it's exciting to see that, I think again, Boulder County is probably the best example of this, but it's really exciting to see that at the ground level, those local governments have shared the benefits of a, a program like this. And they've been able to also educate insurers about what they're doing. And those insurers in turn have been willing to um, continue to offer policies or not increase the premium um, or not drop their coverage. So mm-hmm. it's still in its early days, I think, but it's definitely growing in terms of interest that you know, how can we have a more systematic approach to reducing risk and keeping people in in an, an affordable
1: insurance situation? Awesome. That was really insightful. Um and I'm kind of uh again changing topics very dramatically here, but curious about what kind of like uh what are the, like the sort of biggest obstacles uh preventing us from making our communities a little more fire resilient uh in your perspective? Oh, that's a great question and there seems to be many that come yeah. to mind.
0: Um, wh- I'll speak more just to the planning side because I think the resilient mm-hmm. side with um, with you know landscapes is, is different. Yeah, um, that's true. One of the challenges we have here, let's say in the state of Colorado, is it's a home rule state, so on the one hand, that's a great thing because local counties and jurisdictions have a lot of power to do, especially at the municipality level. Um, They have a lot of power and control to do what they want to do that's, you know, appropriate for them. Um, But we just don't see that translating into a lot of communities, again, you know, taking hold of this idea of passing codes or ordinances that require the use of resilient building materials for wildfire. Um, you know, cost always comes up as a factor, how much this is going to cost, but I think we're starting to see some more research of what does it cost not to take action? You know, what does it cost to let our communities be vulnerable and burn down and rebuild? Um, Mm -hmm. I just I don't think it's published yet, but there's some really exciting research coming out of Canada that's showing, you know, how much money you can really save by preparing for disasters like wildfire through investments in you know resilient structures. Uh, so, anyway, that's a little bit of a meandering answer to your question. I think one of the barriers is is well, how much are local communities willing to um, it might be perceived as imposing something burdensome, but you know and, and again, Molly's ideal world, well, if we had everyone on the same page, we had resources to support, you know actually use implementing these building materials, then we could stop getting out of this disaster cycle as well and just asking money um, from you know sources like FEMA on the back end for recovery. Um, so that I think that would be one one, um, barrier. Oh, another thing that I think comes up a lot is, you know, and this is really a good question is sometimes what are the competing, are there competing objectives? Like we all want, well, maybe we all don't, but certainly many of us want to think about a future where there's, uh, you know, the, the climate isn't changing as rapidly as it is. And I think the question is, well, whose vision of that future, get? who gets to decide? Do we have you know, compact, walkable communities um, that are densely populated? And then we preserve a lot of our land outside of those city boundaries. Um, you know, maybe that's one ideal vision, but does everyone share that? That's a really tough, that's a tough call. It's like we share the idea of the benefits of having a clean environment and a climate that's not changing, but are we all bought into how we get there? So I think those are some of the questions that we'll have to confront too as we talk about, you know, the future and land use and wildfire and, you know, for that matter, forest management. I can't speak to all the nuances of it, but I think there's a similar conversation going on: is who, whose vision of it that that will determine um, the future.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's an idea I hadn't considered. That's a good point. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And kind of, do you think that there's a way that we can sort of shift our, I don't know, better shift our paradigm or better shift the public perception into a more, to a more favorable place in terms of how we're planning uh, our communities for, for fire resiliency? I would hope so. I
0: mean, again, I'm really not sure who would, agree that you know watching especially like this summer watching small towns almost disappear because of wildfires I think I think it's safe to say we all share that that's not a good idea and it's not a good outcome so good point I really hope we do see more um collective action towards how do we move beyond you know thinking about communities as being vulnerable but without I mean there are options and um, you know, I'm excited about, I'm excited about how much more collaboration does seem to be taking place. So we started this conversation about you know, how I got into this and at the time if people, if other land use planners were really talking about this. And I think that has really shifted since I started this. I mean, I, I, I suppose I, you know, officially started in like the late 2000s. So it's been almost 15 years of thinking about this and and being really excited to see a lot more interest in this topic.
1: All right folks that's all I've got for today. Stay tuned for the next couple of episodes that will be a continuation of this series on land use planning and fire resilience. I might be taking a few weeks off because I have a fire assignment in California that starts tomorrow So it might be a couple of weeks before you see another episode from me, but I look forward to getting the rest of the series up as soon as I can. Finally, I just wanted to thank Molly for coming on the show and thank all of you for listening and sharing and subscribing and being super supportive of the podcast. So thanks, and I look forward to catching you on the next one.